Welcome to Dear 20-something. I'm Erica, and I'm a 20-something social entrepreneur who is navigating the ups and downs of being in my 20s. Dear 20-something started because we wanted to create a space for ambitious and curious 20-somethings to connect with the successful woman they most look up to. While the 20s can be a time full of questions and doubts we process internally, Dear 20-something is a space where listeners can hear insights, ask questions, and ultimately get advice from the woman they most admire. Today on the show, I am so excited to be chatting with Kara Golden. Kara Golden is the founder of Hint Inc., best known for its award-winning Hint Water, the leading unsweetened flavored water. Shout out to the watermelon flavor, that's my personal favorite. She has received numerous accolades, including being named EY Entrepreneur of the Year, 2017 Northern California, and one of InStyle's 2019 Badass 50. The Huffington Post listed her as one of six disruptors in business alongside Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg. Kara has successfully navigated the world of large companies and startups in many industries, including media, tech, and consumer products. In addition, she understands retail and direct-to-consumer very well. She's an active speaker and writer and hosts the podcast, The Kara Golden Show, where she interviews founders, entrepreneurs, and other disruptors across various industries. Kara's first book, Undaunted, was published by Harper Leadership in October 2020 and is now a Wall Street Journal and Amazon bestseller. I can't wait to chat with her and share her story with you now on Dear 20-something. Please welcome Kara Golden. Hi, Kara. Hello. Thank you so much. Thanks for being here. I'm excited to chat. Yeah, definitely. Me too. Awesome. So before we dive into your 20s, we like to start every show with a bit of a light question. So what is something new that you learned in this past week? It could be a book you read. It could be a conversation you had. Maybe a beautiful hike. We were just chatting. She went on a hike this morning. Maybe a beautiful hike. You learned something new about nature. Well, as I mentioned to you, I have two new Labrador puppies and they were uh, going to a boarding place to do a one night overnight. And one of our little puppies is my husband says she mimics me. She's very hard charging and very like tough to calm down. There's definitely genetics in play when you've got the two puppies that are so close to each other in age. But it was interesting. She had a hard time calming down. And then when we left, she was totally fine. And it was interesting hearing sort of their perspective on it. It's that when you're in an environment where people that you trust and people who are around you are there and you can act yourself when you're not in an environment where you know anyone, you're more likely to sort of figure out how to get along, right? And I think it's interesting. It really made me sort of think about human behavior and how maybe you go to a new conference and you don't know anybody there, maybe you start to talk to people a little bit, but you're less likely to go in and just like be hard charging, right? Because you want a community around you. You want people to talk to and you just don't want to give off the wrong impression. And it really made me think about in many ways, puppies are not too dissimilar to how people might react to things too. And I think it's true, you know, when you're starting a new job, right? Your personality, your true personality might not actually come out good and bad, right? Because you're trying to sort of like figure out the lay of the land. So it really made me think about life in general. 
I love that. I love that you were so reflective about that. I think animals can often show us what humans actually are like. We've just been socialized to change ourselves. So it's interesting like to look at dogs. They're almost like the purest form of how we are. And so for you to like look at your dog and see yourself and for you to look at your dog and see this behavior, that's so interesting. And it's true. Like, you know, as human beings, we also toggle on and off probably more than even dogs naturally do because they're just like, they experience the triggers and the world around them. Whereas we have to like really navigate and really think about what are people going to think about this? Whereas dogs, I think can be a little bit more like, I'm going to be me and take it or leave it, you know? Yeah. Well, and I think it speaks to like reinvention. I mean, how many times do you think about in your life where, you know, maybe you're bored, maybe the environment that you're in for whatever reason, whether it's school or a work environment where you're just, it's just not gelling for you for whatever reason, or you feel they don't really understand who you are. So I think the beauty is, is that you can go start over and you can reinvent yourself and in some way. And I think that when you pull yourself out of an environment where maybe you have people that you've been working with that sort of understand your behavior, good and bad, right? Versus like going into a new environment and really kind of showing up differently, maybe learning from your mistakes over time. I mean, I think that that's, it's a blessing. Absolutely. It's so great. I heard this quote the other day that I loved. Someone was talking about a flower and how a lot of the times when we feel like a disconnect in life, we blame ourselves. Like, oh my gosh, why am I not liking this more? Why am I not doing this better? Why do I not feel like my best self? But she gave this analogy of a flower. Like when a flower isn't blooming, we don't blame the flower. We move it to closer light. We try to give it more water. We basically try to change the environment around the flower rather than blaming the flower. And I thought that that was such an interesting analogy for humans maybe aren't as good at that. You know, like you said, if there's a time where maybe we need a bit of a reinvention or we need to go explore another opportunity or we're feeling like a little bit tense it's not us, it's the environment. And it's time to change the environment and not blame the person. So she explained it very eloquently, but I thought it was a really great quote. No, I, I love that. Anyway, I love stuff like that. I think metaphors and quotes and even seeing dogs do stuff, it really helps to put our complicated human lives into perspective, you know? So thank you for sharing that. All right, well, we'll dive into our very first question. Obviously, we'll go into your 20s a lot, but I do think it's important to have context of how you grew up and kind of where you wanted to be. So first question, yeah, what did you want to be when you grew up? So I grew up in Arizona. I was the last of five kids, and we almost had two different families, all the same parents, but I had a brother and sister that were 15 and are 15, 16 years older than me, and then a brother and sister that are just a couple of years older than me. And so for me, I learned a lot from my parents, but I also learned a ton from my brother and sister who were significantly older than me. And my brother is an attorney. And so I think I wanted to be an attorney. I don't know why, other than the fact that I loved watching him and hearing about what he was learning in school. And I was always really curious. But for me, at a very young age, I loved to hear about cases. And, you know, I didn't understand until he shared with me that there's different types of attorneys. Not, they don't all go to trial. And, and so I thought, that's what I'm going to be when I grow up. And it's funny because I married an attorney. Now he's a recovering attorney, as he says. But it was... Um, 
<laughs> recovery. Yeah, but I mean, he still, you know, kind of chuckles at the idea that I wanted to be an attorney because not that I couldn't have been a good attorney, but he just like can't imagine. And of course, I met him after college. And but when I was going to school undergrad, I really thought that that's what I would end up being. I think primarily because I was inspired by my brother in many ways. But my brother also was, he kind of was an entrepreneur. I don't think he would consider himself like that, but he worked during the summers and all of his breaks. He painted houses. And so he would come home from law school and he would ask me to ride my bike around the block and find the houses that looked like they needed painting. And so he would be ready as soon as he got home to, you know, go up to them and knock on their door and ask them if they needed their house painted. And he made a ton of money doing this. And I was always like, wow, it's really that easy. And I think he'd take me to 31 Flavors, Baskin-Robbins as, you know, payment. Now I'm thinking he should have cut me in on the deal somehow. But You're like, I want royalties on this. I should get 5% commission. What are you doing? <laughs> I know. And then he would also sell, he'd also fix up old VWs. And we always had VWs in our bugs in our in our driveway. And he would talk to me about how he bought this one and how this one had AC and others didn't have AC and how much more money you could get for having air conditioning or at that time an eight track. That was what people really wanted. And so I was just fascinated. I would sit there and do my homework in the garage, like listening to him think out loud about why this was an incredible deal and what the markup was going to be and how much he made on it. And again, I had no idea really what I was learning back then, but I think the aspect of just my curiosity kicked into gear as I was hearing about business, but sort of funny to me how that never really kind of spurred this idea that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I think part of it is that you know, when I was going to school, I mean, the only entrepreneurs that were really out there that were semi-cool was maybe Ron Popeil. I don't know if you know who he is, but he's, you know, Ron Popeil was like the pasta makers, the butter melter, and all these things like before really entrepreneurs were cool. I mean, entrepreneurs were sort of considered the has-beens, right? Like the people who couldn't get a real job, they would go and become an entrepreneur. And so I think for me, I just never really thought about it in that way as going and starting something based on a mission or a purpose or a hole in the market. And so I think some of my inspiration came from later on in life after working with entrepreneurs or indirectly working for entrepreneurs, but also I think really starting in my house with my brother and to some extent my dad having developed a product inside of a large company and being kind of a frustrated entrepreneur. I always talk about him in that way. He had developed a food product called Healthy Choice that was inside of ConAgra. And again, like I think he didn't become an entrepreneur because that wasn't the thing that made you like good in some way that 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 it was sort of a you know you went to work for a large company definitely had 
a cachet to it. You got your pension plan. You got, I mean, that was like what made you who you were. And I think in many ways, for me, I also was fortunate to have seen that whole dream blow up when he was fired when I was in high school. And after he had invested his life in really following the rules, doing what he was supposed to be doing, doing a great job that, you know, till the day he died, he was getting awards for what he had developed, even though he had been fired, right? And like, it was just crazy. So I think a lot of that, looking back, I think the dots eventually connect, as Steve Jobs said, you know, it's, you look back on those pieces of your own journey and all those kind of come together into who I am today. I love that. That's why this show is so fun too, because as we say here, people are like, oh, I guess that's why I did that. Oh, that makes sense. And it's fun to kind of chat about it. Like you said, hindsight's twenty twenty, And you're talking a little bit about how people needed to follow the rules a little bit more when you were growing up. You know, like your father, you know, being a businessman, but also even you saying, I wanted to be a lawyer or, you know, I want to be a doctor. It's a little bit more like cookie cutter. And there's a few professions that everyone knew about, but entrepreneurship kind of wasn't one of those things. And it was kind of under the radar. And that's why I think it's so special now that people are really able to like not follow the rules, create their own income streams. Like work is completely changing. It's not this like really traditional pick one of these, you know, five careers that the Barbie doll has the outfit for. Like, you know, it's just very formal, like a firefighter. And, uh, and so I think it's really cool to hear you talk about how that's changed. And I'm sure also, you know, you've been part of that change, which is something that you can be really proud of too. You know, I think a lot of these public figures that kind of buck the system and they just do it differently. That's really, really cool. And it's awesome that you had that relationship with your brother. Not many people get to have that nice gap. You know, it's like in between parent and someone to look out for you. So you mentioned you wanted to be a lawyer. As we've discussed, you obviously did not become a lawyer, but you went to college and, you know, I know you went to ASU and you studied journalism. So would you mind telling me a little bit about like thought process for getting a journalism degree while wanting to be a lawyer and how you liked that experience? Well, I always really liked writing a lot, but I also was told that when you go to law school, you write a lot. So get your writing skills kicked into gear and it was funny. I, I remember in my sorority, I had a couple of friends who were finance majors and they were taking these finance classes and I would hear them talking about it. We studying together and I had no idea what they were talking about. It was like EBITDA and all kinds of stuff that was so foreign to me. And I remember I had this gap in my schedule that I had to find a class that I could get into. And I found this entry level finance course that I could take. And I thought, okay, one of my friends was in the class and I thought it'd be fun to take a class with her. And it was the first C that I had ever gotten on a test. Like I couldn't believe it. I was just in shock. Right. And I remember walking up to the professor and saying, maybe I shouldn't really be in this class. And the drop schedule had already gone by. And so I thought, okay, I've got to stick it out and do the best I can in this class. And he shared with me that he thought maybe what would help was if I got a subscription to the Wall Street Journal and also Fortune magazine. And he said, once you start reading those things, then you'll come into class to learn and the concepts will seem a little easier for you. And I thought, oh my gosh, like 
I mean, this is already really hard and now I have to open up a Wall Street Journal and actually see if I can understand these concepts. And it was great advice because it was sort of like advice to, you know, throw yourself in the pit, right? <laughs> to, to some extent, it was really, really hard. And I think it's some of the lessons, you know, even from that point, I think about today, which is, you know, when things are hard, you have a choice. You can walk away or you can actually dive in. And I always think about challenging times don't last forever. The key thing is to make it become a whole lot less challenging by really throwing yourself into it. And so that's what I did. And ironically, in many ways, I kicked into gear on finance. I got a minor in finance. And when I was actually looking for a job, when there were a bunch of companies coming on campus, there were companies that I wasn't that interested in. I, I really believed that I wanted to write. I had sort of thought maybe I'll go to law school eventually, but first I want to go and get a job in media. And the magazine that I wanted to work for was Fortune Magazine. Fortune Magazine was not based in Arizona. I really didn't want to live in Arizona. I had already grown up there and I thought I want to get out and figure out where else I want to live. And so I looked in my Fortune Magazine and the you know inside front cover, the masthead, and it said the managing director, managing editor of the magazine was a guy named Marshall Loeb. So I wrote him an email and I said, hi, my name's Kara Keenan was my maiden name. And I said, I want to share my story. I started taking a finance class, which was really difficult. And I want to thank you for teaching me how to make finance easier. And if it wasn't for you, I probably wouldn't have been able to do that. And he wrote me a note back and said he had never received a note like this from a student. And he really appreciated the fact that I took the time to do this. And he said, if you're ever in the New York area, please let me know. I would love to meet with you. So I had asked him in my note if there were any positions open. He didn't directly say no or yes, but he invited me to New York. And I only needed that invitation to go and buy a plane ticket to come out to New York. And I never got a job at Fortune Magazine. I ended up getting a job at Time Magazine in the same building, fully thinking that I would eventually get into Fortune. I never did, but it's one of the stories I share in my book about just showing up and how, you know, sometimes there were a million people around me saying, you should really check with him. And I thought, if nothing else, I've never been to New York and I really want to go to New York. And I think it'll be just like a lot of fun and you never know what will happen. And that's that story. I love that. Yeah. The door cracks a little and you're like, I'm going to bang it down. I'm going to show up and say hi. I absolutely love that. And good for you. Like, I know that that's the tenacity you've shown throughout your career too, you know, and I think that's what's needed to take advantage of opportunities. Go that extra step. It's so wild to me to hear that he never received a letter like that. But sometimes people just don't take that extra step to say thank you. Well, and I think so many people, I speak on college campuses all the time and I share that story. I mean, I think, think like everyone needs to come to you. You're looking at the job boards, you're waiting to see who's going to come on campus to do on-campus interviews. Instead, I always share with people, find the five companies 
or people, leaders in these companies that have inspired you. And take the time to write them and tell them why. And I mean, it's amazing how few letters people will get like that. And again, if you really want to work for them, if you want an entry-level position, or if you have experience and you can sort of tie the bow together for them, it's worth a shot. I mean, what's the worst that can happen? They can not respond. They can say, no, I'm not interested. But sometimes when they see something different and a spark of relentlessness, creativity, then they might just respond. And again, like I think sometimes things don't exactly happen the way that they're supposed to happen. But I am a huge believer that if you figure out how to not let walls up in front of you and stay complacent, then other things will happen that are great, that are really meant to be. I love that. The power of cold emailing too. Just cold email. I love that advice. And you might as well. And you're already halfway ahead of everyone else if you're taking that extra step to even think about who inspires you, right? To even go that extra mile and reach out and ask them. And I mean, this is the perfect example. You're someone that I admire. I reached out to you. I said, you're awesome. Can we chat? And sometimes it works out. Sometimes they say yes, you know? So I also want to point out too, I think, you know, in the story you shared about your finance class, I think one thing that really stood out to me too is like that teacher who didn't say, drop my class, who said, show up and read some more magazines and double down. And I think that's something that's really powerful too. Not everyone has those people that will encourage them along the way. And I think knowing that your teacher didn't just say, yeah, you know what? A C's pretty bad. You're pretty close to failing. You should just, you know, pick another career, honey, and kind of be condescending or, yeah, maybe journalism really is a better fit which happens a lot. He said, I want you to learn finance and it's okay. Yeah, this stuff is complicated. Put in extra work. And I think like having that person say that to you too was also so powerful because, you know, they could have easily pushed you in another direction and then we wouldn't have hint water today. I mean, who knows how it would have all worked out. So, you know, it's great that that person also, and it's, it's not even just teachers. It's like friends and family. It's like the people that see hard times and they don't say, yeah, better off to run. Instead, they say, let's double down and like learn more. Well, and it's interesting to your flower analogy. I mean, I think that I just didn't have a real strong background in high school in math. And I think sometimes it's really dependent on your journey. I mean, I went to a great school. We had incredible writing teachers, but it just was not the math department was, ah, it was fine but it really wasn't probably at the same level as the classes that some of my friends took. Or maybe my dad was in product marketing and design. And then, you know, my brother was an attorney or getting ready to be an attorney. And maybe their parents were working on Wall Street or accountants. When you are not living it, and you don't have somebody who's speaking it. And then it was just really foreign to me. It didn't mean that I couldn't learn it, but it was definitely something that I just hadn't been exposed to. Right. And that's not on you. That's just your environment, like you said, and like we've talked about. And, you know, good for you for doubling down. And I think that's great advice for everyone. Like if there's something that you have a spark that you like or something you think you could be interested in, find the best magazines and books and just start educating yourself and give yourself that that education that maybe you did not previously get. So 
Thank you for sharing that. So I want to jump to your Time Magazine job. So obviously you graduate ASU, journalism major, minor in finance, very important that we came a long way with that one. And we're thinking maybe law school one day, but for now we're going to go work for Time Magazine, which is unbelievable. Can you tell me how you got that job and how you enjoyed it? So I was trying to get a job at Fortune. I marched into the HR department. Isn't that where you get jobs at? And they heard that I was the poor receptionist, heard that I flew in from Arizona because I wanted to meet with Marshall Loeb. And I said I had gotten this letter. I showed her the letter and she didn't know what to do. She had never seen anybody like me. And so she called the head of HR over and she was very nice and said, I'm so sorry to tell you this, but... We don't hire entry-level people. It sounds like Marshall wrote you a letter back, but he didn't mean for you to actually fly here. And and she was trying to let me down easy, but I took the opportunity to say, well, are there any other roles in the building? I mean, I know there's other magazines here because I'm here. I don't leave until tomorrow. And she said, you know, there's an executive assistant job at Time Magazine. And I had read Time Magazine a few times. My parents subscribed to it, but I didn't really know that much about it. And it wasn't finance, but I thought I'll be in the building and it's a brand, right? And so I said, sure. And I knew what an executive assistant was. I didn't know what an executive assistant in circulation was. And so I went and interviewed with Brooke McMurray, who's still a friend of mine today. And I think like it also speaks to the power of storytelling. I mean, she was trying to figure out how I got there. But like this got on her schedule last minute. And she said, so you came from Arizona. You were wanting to interview at Fortune Magazine. And so I explained the story to her of how I took the finance class and I got a C and that I was really inspired by Fortune Magazine. And so I reached out to Marshall Loeb and I wanted to work at a place that inspired me. And I wanted to work for people that I felt like I could learn from. And that if I wasn't going to be able to get a a role at Fortune Magazine, I would love to work at Time Magazine and I want to work for a great brand, but I also want to work for somebody that is really inspirational. And I said, I don't know you. I didn't receive a letter from you, but you know, you seem pretty great. And she offered me a job. I mean, she desperately needed an executive assistant, but I think more than anything, she enjoyed my story. She enjoyed how authentic I was and how I was just saying it as it is. And I think like that is half of interviewing as well, that it's like show a little bit about who you are and don't be afraid to, you know, you don't have to lay it all on the line and, but, you know, be able to really show that you're enjoying life and that you're thoughtful and that you took the extra steps and that you can make decisions quickly, but you're thoughtful about things. And I think she was really sort of amazed that I had never been to New York before. And I was just energized by the city. I mean, all of these things that I guess people just typically didn't come into her office sort of sharing. And it's funny because I got back to Arizona and I got the job offer from her. And then I got ready to move to New York. And I got really scared because I thought, oh, shoot, what have I gotten myself into? It was really foreign to me and, you know, a similar situation in many ways to 
the finance classes. And I remember my dad saying to me, like, what's the worst that can happen? Like you go out there, you don't have any money anyway. I mean, you're going to have a lease for a year, you know, and by the time you end up renting something and you probably won't have much furniture because your place won't be that big. So figure out how much your one-way ticket is home and what your losses would be. And I mean, that's your risk. And I still think about that today when things are really scary, when you're thinking, I don't know if I should do this or not. Lay out on a piece of paper, what are those things that are kind of getting in your way? Is the fear really that big? And for me, when I actually laid it all out, it was probably 10 grand, which was a lot of money. But I thought, I mean, it'll take me a little while to recover from that, but I'll be okay, you know, if this really doesn't work. And that's my risk. And so I thought I should just go do it and just see what happens. And it was, you know, one of the best decisions I ever made in my life because it really did scare me. But every single day, I loved every piece of it. And I got to know myself so well, too. I'd never been in an environment either where I didn't know people. I mean, I had lived in Arizona my whole life. I had been an athlete, been on teams. And here I was just putting myself into an environment that I didn't know a soul. And I think that that is something that I always share with people as well, that sometimes you really get to know yourself really, really well and what you like and what you don't like and recognize sort of who you are also and what you can accomplish just by having that alone time. And it's all part of the story, like you said, like I'm even hearing you talk about, you know, it's a $10,000 risk, but no matter what, it's a story. You know, if it doesn't work out, well, I lost $10,000, but I picked up and moved to New York City and I learned so much about myself. And then if it does work out, oh my gosh, I moved to New York City and it was risky, but it changed my life. And I learned some, you know, so kind of either way, of course, you don't want to make crazy decisions that are not going, you know, really put you in debt or anything. But like you said, like sometimes it's just how you tell the story and you'll learn from every experience. And I love this idea that you just like put the risk on paper and said, you know what? It's worth it. Either way, I have a story and I'm going to follow my gut. And I love that. And I think that's also very hard to move somewhere new. And I think we hear that a lot with 20 somethings like, you know, you had college in your home state, which is wonderful. But people even at 18 move somewhere, don't know anyone and just have a dream. So I mean, do you have any advice for people that in terms of like moving states, we talked a little bit about weather before we were, we were offline. It's also a lot with the weather, like weather changes. Arizona is very warm and going somewhere like New York is a big shift. So any advice for people that are in that situation? Well, I think it's the same lessons, like lay out what is the risk with you going. And I think also what's the benefit? I mean, for me, I had always thought about New York as this kind of, you know, inspirational place that seemed like that's where the cool kids hung out, right? And that I didn't know any of them, but I thought I'm going to go there and experience it. And that's what I did. I mean, every single time that I had off on the weekends, I, you know, experienced every inch of New York City. And I would figure out things like I lived up off of Central Park West. And I uh, had a 150 square foot apartment that had a, I built a loft in this tiny little apartment and I had 40 foot ceilings. It was this crazy apartment. And so I figured out how to build a loft in there. And so it was uh, almost 300 square feet. I guess if you looked at it, that's the way that I looked at it. 
But, you know, I figured out like I could go running in Central Park and be able to get that greenery. But again, I think it just opened my eyes to so many things. When I was in Arizona, I went to the same restaurants like all the time in New York. It was just I wanted to explore thousands of different restaurants. Right. And I also met so many different people that I hadn't sort of met in Arizona for whatever reason that I felt like I was just meeting people from so many different countries and so many different religions and political beliefs. Like, and every day it was almost exhausting in many ways for me because I was fascinated by how people had lived and grown up. And I just, you know, it was a huge eye opener for me. So, you know, you can always move back. And I go back to what my dad said. It's like, figure out, do you want to be sitting in the same place that you are today? If you're even thinking about possibility of going somewhere else, then maybe you should. So I think like that's the thing. Regrets are something that you carry with you for the rest of your life. And I think it's, I go back to my job when I left time, I ended up working for a late stage startup called CNN. And CNN was only in about 40%. Oh, just a little startup. It was like 40% of the of the US. It was about 12% of outside of the US. And it's funny because I knew what CNN was because I had to have cable in order to get any kind of reception in my 150 square foot apartment. And so when I was called by an executive recruiter to come to CNN to interview, I knew exactly what it was. And little did I know that, you know, Ted Turner worked mostly out of Atlanta, but he was in New York a lot. And so every time he was walking the halls, I mean, you would feel the energy, the founder energy of somebody who had this vision, who, you know, was a little crazy. I mean, there were days where we definitely believed that this wasn't going to pan out. I took it as an interim step to hopefully go and get a job at ABC News or NBC News. It's ironic to think like that was the place to be versus, you know, CNN and where it is today. But I think that was really my first exposure to a true entrepreneur and how he'd wear suits and cowboy boots. I had never even seen that growing up in Arizona. And I just thought he made his own way. And I think like That's the thing that sometimes people will look at visionary entrepreneurs as a little off, not really clear what they're talking about and don't exactly know like what their North Star is or whatever. But I think so often until your audience catches up to where you're at, you can sort of appear that way. And I think Ted Turner was the first time I ever saw something like that. And so often I talk about entrepreneurs as The most important thing is being able to put stakes in the ground around an idea and don't waver, right? And that was Ted. I mean, people would say, well, maybe you should be doing it this way. I remember back when we were selling advertising, cable wasn't measured. And so here, ABC News and NBC News were all measured media. And CNN was like, it was measured in certain parts, but there were definitely areas that it wasn't measured in. And so trying to sell against another network that really seemed clear versus not clear. Ted was like, it doesn't matter. We're 24-hour news. This is what we do every single day. And even if he believed something else, you never heard it out of him. Because as a leader, that's what the people who are supporting you need to hear. 
they need to hear you're putting those spikes in the ground and that you believe. And if you don't believe as an entrepreneur, as a leader, then no one else is going to believe. Wow. That's so amazing. You had that early experience that he was walking the halls and you were there for the early days. Do you feel like you were soaking in everything that he was and thinking to yourself, I want to do this one day? Or what was your mindset at that time with your career? Because you obviously studied journalism and then you go and work at Time as an executive assistant. And then you're now off at CNN. And I know you were doing some sales stuff and you said maybe ABC News. So at this time, were you like heads down on sales? Were you heads down on journalism? Were you like, maybe I want to be an entrepreneur? What was like your mindset at this time? I felt like I wasn't going to get the editorial job within time, which is sort of a longer story. But I think that the culture of fortune and time was mostly filled with kids who had gone to Ivy League schools. And they had this idea that, you know, similar to my dad's situation and kind of why he was fired. I mean, he was ultimately fired because he didn't have an MBA. And that was the 80s. Like the 80s was like, you had to have an MBA and then they just went through and cut the people. It didn't matter sort of what you had accomplished. It's you didn't have this badge, right? And so time, this is in the 90s, was still kind of practicing that. Um, They definitely had people who didn't have MBAs, but the culture was really about having an Ivy League degree. And I think for me, I just didn't have one, right? I never even thought about having one. It was like for me growing up in Arizona to go to a state school and have in-state tuition as well was the option. And it seemed fine until I actually got to New York and saw that there were companies that were going to prevent me from being able to move forward. And so when I got a recruitment from CNN, that was like one of the first questions I asked. I said, so one of the things that I think is holding me back from moving forward at time is that I didn't go to an Ivy League school. I could go to business school and maybe I would go to an Ivy League business school and then it would help me in some way, but let me know. And they said, no, not at all. There's tons of people at CNN that didn't go to an Ivy League school. And so I thought, okay, well, that's great. And I think also having a clear idea about what's going on around me and sort of, again, I didn't agree with it. I didn't think it was right, but I thought I can either be upset about it or I can move on. And so that's what I did. I moved on. I wasn't bitter. I had a boss that, you know, totally understood where I was coming from. She couldn't disagree with me. And so I went to CNN and it was an up and coming brand. It was not the brand that it is today. It was an incredible experience that I didn't know at the time that I was sort of getting ready to go and work for a few other entrepreneurs. But that's where I really caught the bug and really realized that I liked drawing outside of the lines, that I liked being in an underdog situation. I think in many ways, it reminded me of being an athlete where I was totally fine with knowing that there were people on my team that were better than me at certain things because I would learn from those people. And I always felt like, And I still believe this today that competition actually makes you better. If you go into a place, as long as you don't have roadblocks and rules that people are following that are going to prevent you from doing it. So, you know, if you're on a 
tennis team and you're the only woman and you're trying to like change that, you can definitely voice your opinion, but are you going to be able to play? Because that's just whatever it is. I think like there's things like that that I would see in my work environments that I thought I want to go into a place that it seems like it's possible. It might be hard to continue to improve and raise the bar a little bit, but that was really my mindset. And then left New York, ended up meeting my husband in New York, and he was graduating from law school in New York. Full circle. Full circle. Still decided I didn't really want to go to New York, and we moved to San Francisco, and he wanted to do this thing called technology law. And once again, through myself, I actually knew one person, my husband, in San Francisco, and I decided to look for a job. I didn't want to work at CNN and media primarily because I felt like they were satellite offices and most of the stuff was happening in New York. And so the only brand that I really felt like I could pinpoint that it was a Bay Area brand was Apple. And I had in college one of the first Macintosh machines for all my journalism classes versus a typewriter or a giant machine in my room. And I had quietly admired Steve Jobs. I thought that he was the coolest thing, that he created a computer that looked so different, had a cute little apple on it, and they were small and wonderful. and. I admired it. So I was trying to figure out how to get a job at Apple when I moved to the Bay Area. And then I realized that Cupertino or their base, Cupertino to San Francisco was like 100 miles. And I thought, I'm not traveling 100 miles every day. There's no way. So as I was doing research on Apple, I stumbled upon this little startup that was a spin out of Apple that was doing this thing called CD-ROM shopping. I had no idea what CD-ROM shopping was, but I thought maybe Steve Jobs will be in the office and I need to figure out how do I get an interview? How do I go to coffee with somebody who works in this office? I had no idea that it was only five guys in this company. It seemed like it was like going to be a much bigger company. I didn't even know you could have a company with five people in it. I mean, it was just, you know, totally different. So anyway, I cold called the guy that was in this article that it was at this company called Two Market. And I said, hey, I just moved here from New York. I'm so curious what you guys are doing. It seems really, really interesting that you're basically taking graphics and you're putting them on a disc and telling the consumer to load the graphics into the machine. And I get it was a Steve Jobs idea at a time when the internet was dial-up and it was super slow. It's so genius. And the way I explained it to him, first of all, was I'd oversimplified what the product was. And he said, I'm so excited that you get it. He said, are you an engineer? And I'm like, oh, no, I'm so not an engineer. But I just try and figure out ways to make me understand things. And when I was reading this, I was really interested in what you guys are doing and I don't know anybody in the Bay Area, so can I take you to coffee? And he was like, so who did you work for in New York? And I said, oh, I worked at a company called CNN. And he said, what was Ted Turner like? And I said, oh my gosh, I want to talk about Steve Jobs. Like, what was he like to work for? And he's like, okay, great, let's go for coffee. And I took him to coffee. And then 
I asked him, how do you guys make money? And he said, well, we haven't really figured that out yet. And I had been so used to Ted running around the halls saying, we have to sell this stuff, we have to make money. And I thought, how do you guys stay in business? I mean, this is crazy. Like, this is like my first glimpse of Silicon Valley. Here's a bunch of really cool people, all men, five guys, incredibly educated, all wearing jeans and t-shirts and very different from either of the environments that I had worked at in New York. And I thought, sign me up. Like, I'll help you guys make money. So he gave me an offer after the second meeting. And that's when my job was to go to retailers. This is end of 1994 to go to retailers and get them to put their catalog on a disc. And I look back on that experience. There was no roadmap. No one handed me anything. You know, I was calling Mickey Drexler at the Gap. I didn't know that it would be really difficult for a retailer, for example, to ship, you know, an individual item until I sat down with L.L. Bean and started to really understand, like, you know, that there's pick and pack plants and there's, you know, all these things versus actually shipping an entire pallet and all that kind of went into that. So for me, it was like going to school. Yeah, it was your MBA. Yeah, and there was nobody who was running these direct-to-consumer businesses. So one of the things that I share in my book is, you know, I got in to see the CEO of The Gap, and his name was Mickey Drexler. And Mickey was like, friends of mine were like, how did you get in to see the CEO of The Gap? I mean, the gap at the time was like the hottest retailer. And I said, I don't know. I just called them and said, hey, do you want to talk about e-commerce? Nobody was calling it direct to consumer at the time. And he said, sure. He said, it's too slow. And I said, no, no, no. We figured out a way to fix that. And he said, okay, come in. And so we started having a series of meetings and talking about this and, you know, how could we do a test? And I said, just give me some graphics and we'll start to build this thing out. And again, I think it's a story of, I really thought that as long as I deliver, as long as I'm not super annoying to him, as long as I'm able to make a business suggestion to him that he can kind of see the future, I'm going to keep getting invited back in and I'm going to help him build out this direct-to-consumer business. So that was you know, a couple of years. And then, you know, went through my first acquisition, one of our investors, America Online, we were needing money for our startup. And America Online decided to acquire us. And so when they acquired us, there was a group of us that they asked to stay on. And when they asked us to stay on, I was one of them. And they said, we want you to do exactly what you were doing to market, but instead on a larger scale, but we don't really know when it will happen. And basically we have America Online has a whole marketplace and we want you to populate it and go out to more retailers because we weren't limited by space like we were on this disc. So it was sort of like I was an online mall developer and I would call up people and share that that's what I was doing. And again, like nobody was really saying that even e-commerce would happen. This is end of 1996, 1997. So many stories. I mean, building bookshelves with Jeff Bezos, you know, as it was just like 
a bookseller. I mean, it was just crazy and had no idea that I was living in it. I just knew that I was just enjoying every single minute of it. And it was hard and it was challenging. And, you know, we tried and failure wasn't an option or anything that we thought about. It was just like, I got to go figure this out. It was just a problem that we had to just keep pushing and keep pushing and technology would just keep getting better. And we'd eventually like have to wait and hope that engineers would make things faster and things would go on. But it was, there was always this gleam of hope that was there that was, while I was doing my job, I was hoping other people were doing their job so it could get bigger. And anyway, it was a billion dollars in revenue to AOL when I left. Unbelievable. Yeah. And it was an incredible ride and I was having a lot of fun. My husband worked for another internet company called Netscape and he was one of their in-house counsel for Netscape. And we had just started our family. And that's when I said, I need to stay here in San Francisco. I had been traveling since I moved to San Francisco like a nut. And I thought AOL was based in Virginia. And then I was all over the place wherever retailers were. And I thought, you know what? I need to stay put. I have young kids. I really want to watch them and be a part of their life and see my husband. And I took a couple of years off. And that's when I had no idea that I was going to start my own company or start my own beverage company. I hadn't really taken a moment to think about the entrepreneurs that I had worked for. I just knew that I wanted to work on something that was kind of a new idea or an idea that was like an underdog idea that I could really have impact in. So I was talking to a ton of companies in Silicon Valley. I think the other piece of this that I found was that I didn't want to do AOL 2.0, right? I felt like I could go work for Yahoo or Microsoft or Google at the time was just kind of getting going. But I thought, I don't know. I just like, I want to go do something else. I never thought about leaving the tech industry. But for me, when I was trying to, I really became aware of what I was putting in my kids' bodies. And then looking at my own habits, started to think like, I should practice what I preach here. I'm telling my kids like they shouldn't be having sugar and lots of different preservatives and not putting additives in their foods, but I had plenty. I was totally addicted to diet soda and had been drinking it since I was in high school and I would never give it to my kids. So why was I okay with putting it in my body? And that was really, you know, what's sort of spurred the idea for me to go ahead and start Hint. Because I thought if I can actually have impact, if I can make people understand that these diet sweeteners might actually be kind of the thing that is causing them to not be as healthy as they want to be. Absolutely. You were one of the earliest, earliest movers in this space. I think we look now and everything's natural and everything's organic, but you were one of the first people to see it because no one really knew back then, you know, what was in all this stuff and no one really paid attention. And obviously now we have this awareness because of brands like yours that kind of point that out to us. But I know back then it's hard to even imagine like how we were thinking about, you know, food and, and drinks and stuff. And thank you for sharing all that about your, your startup journeys and building everything. It's so cool to hear that you really did build something. I mean, five people is the early days and being in that tech world in the very beginning is just... I mean, I can't even imagine what that was like. And thank you so much for sharing all that. It's, it's very interesting. So I do 
have one final question for you. You know, you shared so many words of wisdom throughout this conversation. And I know that your amazing book, Undaunted, has so many more. So for those of you who want to, you know, hear more, definitely check that out. But if we could consolidate that to one piece of advice that you would give to all 20-somethings, what's that one piece of advice that you would give them? So I've been thinking a lot about this in particular over the last couple of years that for me always, I wanted to move to New York, right? Because I wanted to see something else, but I really always enjoyed the outdoors and growing up in Arizona, I think I naturally had this indoor outdoor lifestyle. The weather is really conducive to being able to run and hike and really enjoy the sky and all of those things. I loved the energy of the cities and I spent most of my early career in my 20s in cities, but I was always kind of craving to find green grass and be able to go to the beach and really be able to get out and enjoy nature. So I moved to San Francisco and lived in the city, smaller city than New York, but still a city. And when I moved to Marin County, where I live now, I ended up finding a house that backed up to 100 miles of trails. And what I've realized is that being able to actually spend time every single day out in nature actually makes you a lot more calm, a lot more zen, and not constantly be in an environment where people are rushing around, people are in subways. It's not to say that I don't enjoy those environments, but I think if I could do it all over again, I think I would definitely be able to have kind of my foot halfway in the city and also halfway in, into an environment that really, really is close and easily accessible. Because if an outdoor space is over an hour away, you just get busy and you just don't do it. And I think that if you can find a way to sort of breathe and treat your brain in some way that you'll appreciate where you work, where you live, all those things are really, really critical. And I instead was so focused on being in a work environment that I wanted to be in or work for a certain brand or whatever. And I think that that's where balance, you know, I think comes in. And I think it's hard to have balance, but I think that if you can figure it out from an environmental standpoint, like where do you feel you can thrive in a certain environment? I really think that how much is nature important to you? I absolutely love that. And I actually share that same philosophy. There's so much science to back how actually nature makes us happier. There's a book called The Nature Fix. Have you read that book yet or no? I have. Oh, it's so good. And one thing they talk about is how a lot of Japanese executives, they send them into the forest to do like forest bathing to really cleanse themselves and their energy and like some of the toxic work stuff. And I don't know, I just, that really stuck with me. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's something that you and I were talking about. I go every morning and I always say, my kids have grown up and moved out of the house and we live in a great public school system. So we have had lots of people trying to buy our house, you know, knock on our door. And I'm like, I don't know if I, where I would go. And it's primarily because of this ease. Like I don't have to get in my car, go find a parking spot, you know, all these things. I just walk out my door. And if you can live in an environment that is like that, even if you have to drive into the city half an hour, to go to work. Not enough people think about that. And I think environment, you have to value it and look at it in a way. It's not just about a job. It's really about, 
you can find a job and also live in a place that I think makes your soul happy. I absolutely love that. That's such great advice. And it's so cool to hear, like you said, you go out every morning. I'm like, oh my gosh, I wish I could go on a hike every morning. And you know, even if you can't, let's say temporarily you're living in a cement building apartment and eventually you want to do that, but you know, bring a tree into your house, open the windows, go outside for a walk. Like there's little things. And then eventually, hopefully you can have a home where you can go outside and there's all the nature you want. So Kara, this has been so much fun for me. Thank you so much for coming on. Would you mind telling everyone where they can find you on social media, where they can find your podcast and what you maybe just a quick synopsis of what you guys do? And then of course your book, where that you recommend they go get your book? I'm all over social media at Kara Golden. And the book is called Undaunted, Overcoming Doubts and Doubters. It's all about my early journey, but mostly about building Hint and all the ins and outs of being an entrepreneur. And also my podcast, The Kara Golden Show, I interview incredible entrepreneurs and CEOs of companies. I just had Miriam Nafasi, who's the founder of Minted, just interviewed Chip Wilson from founder of Lululemon and just incredible people who have, uh, you know, it wasn't overnight successes. They have all kinds of challenges along the way and definitely have a listen. I think you'll really enjoy their stories. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Kara. It was so nice to have you on. Thank you so much. Thank you everyone for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, you can give us a follow over at Dear 20 Something, anywhere you get podcasts.